Welcome to Diffusion, the National Science Show. If you like your science fresh, interesting, uncluttered, unprejudiced and relevant, join us for the next half hour and enjoy the sensation of your mind expanding as we pour it into your brain. In this edition, Ian Wolfe will demonstrate that the invasion of oil-rich countries will no longer be necessary in the near future when electric cars come to the fore. Catherine Behag will tell us about an amazing new innovation in crime detection that can actually detect whether or not a suspect has memories of the crime. And we'll have the usual round of falsifiable, observable and statistically unreliable mirth and mayhem. Watmore, can I say, except my name's Watmore, Lachlan Watmore. And first up, we have the news with Mark West. I love Google Earth. I've found my house, places I've stayed, and I've stalked people using it. But now it is being used to highlight environmental damage, including rampant forest destruction, retreating glaciers, and explosive urban growth. The UN Environment Program, the UNEP, have released before and after satellite images of 100 global environmental hotspots using Google Earth. Google Earth's 100 million users can now access the UNEP's Atlas of Our Changing Environment. To use this, go to Google Earth's Featured Content. These satellite pictures are a wake-up call to all of us, said UNEP Chief Achim Steiner. They are a compelling new way of visualising the dangers facing our planet today. Among the hundred hotspots are the dwindling Amazonian rainforest, melting polar ice caps, and the startling declines of Central Asia's Aral Sea and Africa's Lake Chad, shown in satellite images captured between 1963 and 2004. The rapid urbanisation of the US city of Las Vegas between 1973 and 2000 and the southern Chinese metropolis of Shenzhen between 1979 and 2004 are also shown. We've previously chatted about how coffee can be good for you, but here's a story for the tea drinkers among us. Drinking several cups of of green tea each day may substantially reduce your risk of cardiovascular disease, a study of more than 40,000 people in China in Japan has found. The new findings also cast doubt on the idea that tea helps prevent cancer. Researchers began the study in 1994 by asking participants in northeast Japan how much green tea they consumed each day. About a quarter of the 40,000 subjects drank less than one cup a day, on average, while a similar number reported drinking more than five cups, or half a litre, daily. The Japanese team then tracked the health of the participants for more than a decade. The number of participants who died from cardiovascular causes during this period was small, less than 1% of those in each category of tea consumption. They found that those who consumed more than five cups of green tea daily had a 26% lower lower risk of dying from cardiovascular disease than those who consumed less than one cup per day. The team speculates that antioxidant chemicals in green tea, called polyphenols, reduce the action of free radicals in the body, which may damage cells, and this may be how it works. However, the new study did not find evidence to support the idea that green tea consumption reduces the risk of cancer. But they didn't find any evidence that it caused cancer either, so that's a relief. Ever met someone bulky and hairy who has clubbed you over the head and carried you back to his cave? Well, this may be some women's fantasy, and we have good news for them. Neanderthals, who were thought to have died out as modern humans arrived in Europe, may have existed alongside modern humans for millennia, and possibly even interbred. Artifacts found in a cave in Gibraltar reveal that the two groups coexisted for millennia before Neanderthals finally dwindled out of existence. Homo sapiens moved into Europe about 32,000 years ago. 
but the newly unearthed artefacts show that a remnant population of Homo neanderthalensis clung on at least 28,000 years ago, a significant overlap. The big question is whether they interbred with modern humans. The consensus now sees Neanderthals as having been largely replaced rather than assimilated into the modern human gene pool, says Katerina Havati at the Department of Human Evolution at the Max Planck Institute for Evolutionary Anthropology in Leipzig, Germany. Genetic evidence from several Neanderthals shows that they were very distant genetically in their mitochondrial DNA from modern humans. So if they did interbreed, the Neanderthal genes did not survive. Now that's a shame. In breaking news from Canada, Rock Band says Pluto got a bum deal. If they wanted to lose a planet, they should have picked Uranus. Canadian band Subplot A have released a song, Pluto Rocks, as a protest song written and recorded by Subplot A to raise awareness and earthly funds to save their beloved Pluto from demotion. Subplot A decided to misdirect their end-of-summer angst into recording a protest song in four days, which, if booming at the speed of sound from a car stereo, will reach Pluto in 411 years. Pluto is part of a worldwide consciousness, our culture, they say. He's the smallest, the coldest, and the most distant. He is romance. He is mystery. Pluto is the underdog, and he needs our help. So this song, Pluto Rocks, it's no dark side of the moon. It's not even drops of Jupiter by train. But it does let people know that Pluto is our family. Pluto is our history. And Pluto is a dwarf to nobody, except perhaps the myopic, pedantic, and misguided pocket-protected astronomers of the International Astronomical Union. So here's a little sample from Pluto Rocks. You always seem so distant A million miles away We've travelled different orbits Your night was my day Never knew you too well You seem a little cold But you've been a part of me Since I was five years old
Grandfather Pluto's got a moon of his own. Pluto on rocks, don't hurt him no more. Grandfather Pluto, don't call him no dwarf, no. Have you just seen An Inconvenient Truth, Al Gore's latest environmental film, and want a way to reduce most of your carbon emissions? Ian Wolf looks forward to the resurrection of all electric cars. The electric car lives again. A new company in Silicon Valley has released the all-electric Tesla Roadster this year. The new science documentary to watch after An Inconvenient Truth is coming to Australian cinemas in November called Who Killed the Electric Car? The film documents how General Motors and other car companies built rechargeable electric cars in 1996 and then recalled and shredded them all. That's right, the movie shows them shredding new cars. Car owners had solar panels on their house that collected enough power to recharge the car overnight. Imagine the attraction of a car for which you never have to buy petrol, which is silent and has no nasty fumes. Now imagine the car company demands you return the car and shreds it. The trailers for the movie are on YouTube.com. In the 21st century, Tesla Motors comes to the rescue by taking advantage of the fruits of globalisation and computer technology. Tesla Motors realised that the cutting edge of battery technology isn't with the heavy lead-acid batteries that cars have always used, but in the lithium-ion batteries that have been developed for laptops, mobile phones and electronic books. The Tesla Roadster has 6,800 rechargeable lithium-ion batteries, which let it travel 400 kilometres on one charge at a price of less than one cent per kilometre. That would get you from Sydney to Canberra with plenty of wiggle room. Tesla Motors are also offering the solar home roof tile package so that new owners pay less for power and drive emission-free. Californian homeowners can sell their excess power back to the electricity grid. This could make a huge impact on greenhouse gas emissions and pollution in general. Tesla Motors have the backing of PayPal co-founder Elon Musk, Google's Larry Page and Sergey Brin, and ex-eBay chief Jeff Skoll. It's a very Silicon Valley car company. Tesla founder Martin Eberhard is an electrical engineer who has invented an electronic book that squeezed 20 hours of running time out of its rechargeable batteries. He wanted a car he could drag race that would also be pretty and clean. He found that the big three car companies in the US have outsourced all their manufacturing to Asia in order to lower costs. This means that his new company could buy just about everything it needed to mass-produce a car from independent suppliers. They hired Lotus designers and engineers from England to set up a secret car company in Northern California. It was secret so that people would only see the car when it already had all the bugs ironed out and would get good publicity. A new company needs a good reputation. The parts are manufactured in Taiwan and assembled in England. The body is light carbon fibre instead of heavy steel. The company and the car are named after Nikola Tesla, the genius with over 100 patents who invented alternating current and the first AC magnetic induction motor in the 1880s. Because of his work, the unit of magnetic flux is called the Tesla. In the car motor, the electricity creates a magnetic field that spins the rotor. There are no other moving parts, so there's no maintenance or constant replacement of spare parts. No carburetor, tune-ups, no air filters, no fuel lines. 
They recharge from a special 220-volt, 70-amp outlet that could be installed anywhere in the world. For the rev heads, it has a top speed of 240 kilometres per hour. It goes from 0 to 100 kilometres per hour in 4 seconds. The car uses the same regenerative braking found in hybrid cars, so that you generate electricity when you slow the car down to brake. It comes with a home charging system for your garage and a mobile system for travelling. The lights are low-power, super-bright LEDs, like you see in Sydney buses and traffic lights. The two-seater sports car is just the appetiser to bring in the early bucks and publicity. The four-seater family car is due out in 2008. The Roadster goes for $80,000. The luxury models will fund the research for the economy models. If you want to go green right now in Australia, you can buy a hybrid car that burns petrol to generate electricity to run an AC motor like the Tesla Roadster. Hybrid cars use half as much petrol as your internal combustion engine for the same distance. Nikola Tesla invented them in 1904. Hybrids use lead-acid batteries, so they could use less fuel if they adopted the more efficient lithium-ion batteries. Of course, as Apple and Dell recently discovered when they were forced to recall over 4 million Sony laptop batteries, if you don't make the batteries right, then they can start fires. The Tesla Roadster's 6800 batteries could make a lot of fire. Tesla motors don't use Sony batteries. They've developed their own extremely safe lithium battery system, piggybacking off the research for the electronic book. Put some solar cells on the body of the car, and you'll have a car that recharges for free as it drives, when it's braked, and when it's parked. That was Ian Wolfe exploring the petrol-free future of rechargeable electric cars.
That was Camera Obscura with Lloyd, I'm Ready to Be Heartbroken. They just don't write songs like that anymore. Well, well, actually, they do. You're listening to Diffusion, the national science show brought to you on the Community Radio Network. And if you want to get in touch with us, get on to diffusion at 2ser.com. Now, do you ever have a nightmare that some snooty bastard can read your thoughts? Are you ever so concerned that the great dark secret inside your head is not so safe? In her feature debut, Catherine B. Hagg will take us a step further to that nightmare with a look at brain fingerprinting. Police come to your door, grab you, take you to the cop shop and stick electrodes on your head. You are not asked anything at all, but instead lay there silently watching pictures of a crime flash before your eyes. Ten minutes later, the police tell you that you are found guilty of a murder of a young woman called Sally. No further questions are asked, as your brain has told them everything. Brain fingerprinting is a technique developed by Dr Lawrence Farwell, a Harvard graduate, neuroscientist and now chairman of and chief scientist of brain fingerprinting laboratories. Here, words, pictures or sounds relevant to a crime are presented with irrelevant words and pictures to a suspect. When stimuli relevant to the crime is presented, the suspect lets off an involuntary, specific and measurable brain response. This brainwave response is measured by a patented headband equipped with EEG sensors. Dr Farwell told BBC News that brain fingerprinting doesn't have anything to do with emotions, whether a person is sweating or not. It simply detects, scientifically, if that information is stored in your brain. Farwell brain fingerprinting has proven 100% accurate in over 100 tests, including tests on FBI agents, tests for a US intelligence agency, for the US Navy, and tests on real-life situations, including actual crimes. Those in favour of brain fingerprinting hope to use it in the legal system. If brain fingerprinting proves as foolproof as early research suggests, this would be a legal revolution. Its effects have already been felt in the United States criminal justice system. On April 25, 2000, Dr Farwell used brain fingerprinting to exonerate an innocent man who has spent 23 years in prison for a murder that he did not commit. Terry Harrington was convicted of the 1977 murder of a night watchman in Iowa. Brain fingerprinting results showed Harrington's brain did not contain details of the crime that would be known to the perpetrator but he did have memories stored in his brain that matched several alibi witnesses who testified Harrington was elsewhere at the time of the crime. Despite this success, brain fingerprinting has yet to be used in the Australian criminal justice system. As you might know, science and the law have had a difficult relationship in Australia. When science enters the legal realm, it has often shown the flaws in our seemingly reliable legal processes. No matter how certain the scientific technique it is in the hands of the scientist and lawyer to ensure that it is used properly. These techniques are used most often with the identification of suspects. This is a critical part of the legal system. Proper identification separates the innocent from the guilty. Misidentification can condemn a poor bystander, like you or me, to imprisonment and allow a criminal to get off scot-free. The case of the Mickelberg brothers in Western Australia is a prime example. Based on fingerprint evidence, the brothers were convicted of trying to defraud the the Perth Mint in 1983. The brothers were finally freed after proving that it was possible to fake fingerprint evidence. The Australian legal system has tried to control the use of scientific evidence in court. 
Justice Keith Mason has said that judges must ensure that the jury understands its role and understands exactly what the scientific evidence does and does not tend to prove. These rules reflect the legal system's general, general suspicion of science. But when science is used well, justice can be achieved. In a high-profile investigation of a sexual assault in 2000, police decided to take DNA samples of all men in the New South Wales town of Weewar. The mass screening was critical in police finding and convicting the man responsible. This was a significant success for science in the legal system and helped to ease fears about the use of DNA evidence. DNA, fingerprints and other forms of forensic evidence are used a lot to help solve crimes in Australia. But evidence of this type is only applicable in an estimated 1% of crimes. The use of brain fingerprinting, however, is estimated to be applicable in over 50% of cases, as the brain is always there, planning, executing and recording the suspect's actions. And I believe lawyers must learn to embrace this technology because it can help to achieve swift and fair justice. That was Catherine B. Hag with script assistance from Mike Tran on brain fingerprinting. And I don't know about you, but I'm terrified. Uh, we've got the open mic uh, discussion right now. We've got uh, Ian Wolf, Mark West, and uh, Catherine herself uh, talking about it. And Cathy, I believe you've actually got a case for us here where this has been used. Yeah, well, there's actually been quite a few cases, um, over 100, where it's um, been shown to be extremely accurate. And um, one of them was a case um, in 1999 where Dr. Firewall conducted a brain fingerprinting test on a guy called Grider. And because this showed that he had a record stored in his brain, mm. which matched the details of the crime, mm. he then um, pled guilty to the rape and murder of um, Julie Helton um, ex- in exchange for a life sentence without parole. And he's currently serving that sentence. And, okay. and from now on, he's confessed to other previously unsolved murders of three other young women. So oh, okay. it seems to be very yeah. good technique. Okay. Well, well when, it, when it works, it works. What do you mm. think, guys? Is there, well, is there any way to fake it? You can fake a lie detector test. Can you fake a brain scan? I bet you can. I wouldn't be surprised. I mean, there's the old cliche, you know, I've, I've blotted it out. It was too horrible a memory. Perhaps if you used, you know, certain meditation techniques or, or various cognitive techniques, you could actually blot out the memory. Uh, of uh, the crime that you've committed and therefore could not be detected by what, brain What about the opposite where people say under hypnosis they've had images and th- memories planted in their brains? Do you that's, think- that's the other side of it, yeah. Yeah, implanted false memories are extremely um, yeah, dangerous territory. However, um, I'm not sure if Dr. Farwell and um, his other researchers have looked into that. Yeah, do you, you don't know whether or not there's some sort of foolproof way to, mm. to prove that it is a genuine mm. memory rather than planted yeah. or whatever. Well, especially since he did patent um, brain fingerprinting, so we can't replicate it apart it's, from in his labs. It sounds like they're actually using this to persuade people to confess, which means mm. that if they got a false positive and you aren't guilty, you won't confess. So yeah. you won't be con- the confession seems to be what's convicted him more than the brain fingerprint. Oh, right. Okay. Yeah. Well, that's, yeah, right just underline the whole thing with the actual confession itself, you know, like the old days, you Mm. know. But it's extremely different to the other lie detectors out there. They're really, they can't be used that much, and we know that you can implant fingerprints and everything else. There you have. And congratulations to Catherine for her feature debut.
And that's the end of Diffusion, the National Science Show. Um, if you'd like to send us an email, we'd very much like to hear from you. You can email us at diffusion at 2scr.com. Uh, you can pick us up on a podcast on at feeds.feedburner.com forward slash diffusion radio. That's feeds.feedburner.com forward slash diffusion radio. And we're broadcast nationally on the Community Radio Network. Producing tonight's show has been Jackie Hayes with technical assistance from Jackie Peffer. Ian Wolfe and uh, Catherine Behag have contributed features tonight and Mark West has done the news. My name's Lachlan Watmore. Tune in next week for more Diffusion Science.